you that no power of hell or scheme of man can pluck us from the very presence of being in your hand. Our Savior told us that as he reiterated in his word that he said, no man shall pluck you from my hand. That is a calming thought in the midst of a confusing world. When everyone is trying to find the answer to reality and to truth, I thank you, Lord, that we have that all in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are also our great comforter. That even in the midst of life's storms, we can rely upon your presence. And in many ways, you rise and say, peace, be still. There can be no greater comfort than that, no greater joy than knowing a God who cares enough about us that he even knows the number of hairs upon our head. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the remembrance of that truth of your grace. Thank you that, Lord God, that you being our vision reminds us that you are our Father and we are your sons and daughters, children of the living God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is by that claim, by your gospel, that we thank you that, Lord, that you have given us this witness, that you have given to us eternal life, and this life is in your Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. These things are written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you can have eternal life and continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It is by your gospel, not only that which we are saved, but it is in that which we stand. And we thank you that this morning, gathering here together as your children, anticipating to hear from you today, doesn't matter, O oh Lord God, of the activities outside. All that matters is that we've come to your throne and we want to hear from you today. Let my words be few. May my thoughts, O oh Lord God, be guided by your spirit. May the direction of your word to our hearts be spurned by the very power that resides in us. And may we, O oh Lord God, be changed. Changed from when we arrive to the time that we leave. May we be changed in more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. 
we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill this place with your presence. May we be awestruck in hearing your voice speak to our hearts. That which we do not understand, I pray, O oh God, that you will help us to realize the truth. Those things that we are weak in, I pray that you would strengthen us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my Redeemer. For it is in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. On any given either Friday night or Saturday or Sunday, there are teams that take to the field. Usually the, the home team is the one that is basically encouraged the most, but something happens on that field. The teams gather, whether on offense or defense, they gather into a huddle and they begin to discuss how it is we can be effective today. The offensive team is trying to be effective in scoring and the defensive team is trying to be effective and to keep that from happening. And the purpose of the huddle is to make sure everyone is on the same page for that particular play that is about ready to come. And sometimes that manifests itself as not being very good because if you've watched football games, you recognize once in a while whether an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman, they'll move before the play is supposed to go. And so they are reminded by another team that is on the field. In fact, the other team that is on the field is really the most important team that's on the field. We call them zebras. No, not the four-legged animals. We're talking about individual men who gone, if you will, the uniform of being a referee or an umpire or a back judge, field judge. They're the ones that have the rule book. And they're the ones that keep everybody else that is playing, whether offensively or defensively, they keep them in line with what the rule book has to say. And we gather here this morning as a huddle. And there's a, a group of people that are looking for us to see what it is we're going to do. Will we be successful? Will, be, will we be effective in the plan that we will discuss here in our sacred huddle? We have the rule book. And the rule book guides in all areas of life, so it would garner us well if we would take the rule book and see what it has to say. All of that being introduction to Galatians chapter 2. 
In Galatians chapter 2, I see three functions for effectiveness. Three functions for effectiveness. That you can be effective, if you will, personally, singularly, if you wish, whether it is at your home or whether it is at your workplace. There are three functions that are described for us in Galatians chapter 2 that help us individually and corporately as a church to be effective in order that we can handle the rule book well in all of life. I remind you, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for every aspect of life. And so we would do well to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul has, is doing in chapter 2 and is saying. Because if anyone exonerated of life of effectiveness, it would have been the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, we, we saw at least it was pointed out, and I trust you caught it, that in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is trying to isolate himself from every other person. He says, this gospel that I preached to you, I did not receive it from any man. Acts chapter 9 gives us the story of how he received it. He said, I received everything from Jesus Christ. He spent time on three years in the desert. You remember he left the confines of a city to go to the classroom of the desert. And it was there that he was taught. But now in chapter 2, the paradigm switches, changes. Now he is associating himself with people. I'll give you the quick outline, then you'll have to be bored to death the rest of the information. Verses 1 to 10, the function of unity. The function of unity. 11 through 18, the function of confrontation. The function of confrontation. 19 to 21, the function of identity. The function of identity. Those three things are very evident in this chapter, and we trust that we will draw from them things or functions that will make us effective in our Christian life. Let's take a look at these independently of each other but at the same time realizing that they have a common theme. And the theme is this. It is the function of the gospel. The function of the gospel. It is by the gospel that we have unity. It is by the gospel that we can confront sin and things of this world, and it is by the gospel we have our identity. That is the underlying current that the Apostle Paul continues to dwell upon. 
In verses 1 to 10, it says, 14 years later, the Apostle Paul says, I went to Jerusalem and met with individuals. He called them pillars of the church. They're not named in those particular verses, but we can conjunction that those particular pillars would be in reference to Peter, James, and John. They would have been leaders, if you will, in the Jerusalem church at the time of the writing of this book. They would have been the ones who even gave direction to Paul and to Barnabas to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So 14 years later in his ministry, he goes back to Jerusalem and meets with these individuals for the simple purpose of this, saying, I want to make sure I'm not running the race in vain. Unity. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is describing for us the value of unity. Let me give you a definition of that word unity. In the Hebrew, it literally means unitedness. In the Greek, it has one word meaning, one. That's all it means, is one. There are scriptures in that, that describe for us differently of how this unity is supposed to work. In Psalm 133, verse 1, the Hebrew word of unitedness means this. Behold how great and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unitedness, unity. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, the Greek word that means one, it says, endeavoring to keep the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. What's interesting, too, in the Scriptures, unity is described as the believer with his Lord. In John chapter 15, that very familiar passage that deals with the fact that Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Unity. In Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 21 down to verse 33, we get the picture of the, if you will, the roles and responsibilities of the husband and the wife but then ultimately it comes to a close in saying the union of the husband and the wife is a picture of Christ and his church. Unity. Other scriptures remind us too that, that unity is in diversity and diversity is in unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when we're talked about having being a part of one body, and each one of us has a different part in that body. We're diversity in our giftedness, in our abilities, but yet even in our diversities, we are a part of being a body, a unity. And in the football realm, you have offensive linemen who are big and slow. 
you have a quarterback who is supposed to be the general of the field. And then you have a running back that just runs for the sake of his life. I wouldn't want to be hit by someone who's 6'5", 300 pounds. I think they run sometimes out of fear. Then you have wide receivers that are out there just to catch the ball. They're, to be, they're supposed to be the ones that are acrobatic, if you will, in, in the ability to catch an imperfect ball. Each one of them has a different function, they, but they have a unity in diversity. And they have a diversity in unity. Their common goal is to win. I, I doubt there's ever a team that takes the field that has the mindset that we're going to lose. When Vince Lombardi took over the Green Bay Packers back in the early 60s and late 50s and early 60s, I'm talking about 1960, not 2060. When he took over the Green Bay Packers, he had a team that didn't win. They didn't know how to win. And his first meeting with them in the team room, he held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. He said his first year he spent in changing the mindset to create unity in order that we could begin to win. And from that moment on, the Green Bay Packers became known as one of the most disciplined, one of the most effective teams because they believed in the fact of unity. The church can't function without being unified. We all have different talents. Even this morning, as Miss Jenny and, and Melinda played for us, some of you can, can do that. And, and I relish the fact that we're blessed here at Grace Community Church with so many individuals that do that well. Later on, we're going to have some Sunday school classes and, and teachers who are gifted in order that they can expouse, if you will, the, the word of God from kindergartners all the way up through to senior saints. Not everybody can do that. But not everybody, too, can take the time to mow lawn. I was asked this morning, am I mowing the lawn twice a week? I said, sometimes every other day. Thank God for the rain. Amen. There's two ways to mow lawn. I'll just take a Shakespeare aside. Two ways to mow lawn. You can mow lawn for dough or you can mow lawn for show. I mow lawn for show. Not everybody likes to do that. But there's a unity in the fact of things that we can do and rely on the things that what other people do. And the Apostle Paul came into Jerusalem realizing the fact that his ministry was different than Peter's ministry. In fact, he highlights the fact that the same gospel that was given to me to preach to the Gentiles it's the same gospel that was given to Peter 
to preach to the Jews. But in that difference, in that diversity, there was unity because the gospel was the centerpiece of what he was talking about. Unity. In a book written by Barbara Brokoff, the title of the book was Grapes of Wrath or Grace. She included this story of a group of American tourists were taking a bus tour in Rome and led by an English-speaking guide. Their first stop was a basilica and a piazza which was surrounded by several lanes of... After they were all safely dropped off, the group climbed the steps for a quick tour of the church. Then they spread out to board the bus which at this time was parked across the street from the church. The frantic guide shouted to the group to stay together. He hollered out to them. He said, you cross one by one, they hit you one by one. But if you cross together, they think you will hurt the car and they won't hit you. Wise words. Stay together. The first two, ten verses of Galatians chapter 2, that's what Paul was suggesting. We may be different in our ministries, but we work together for the same master. And his name is Jesus Christ. The second function that we see in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18 is this. The function of confrontation. I don't know if there's anyone that relishes that. We see a lot of it in our world today. Confrontation. Usually it is fueled by what individuals feel is their rights instead of what is really right. The Apostle Paul, it's an interesting phrase, as he begins, he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to blame for before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews were also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You got to love the Apostle Paul when he begins to write. He doesn't mix words. He said, Pete, you're a hypocrite. And the problem was is that when the other Jews, as referred to as a circumcision, when they weren't in town, Pete didn't have any problem with sitting down and eating with Gentiles. Something that was not practiced often in the Jewish realm. 
And yet, Pete didn't have a problem with that. But as soon as James showed up and brought other Jews with him, Pete left town. He got away from the table. And he began to do things that were not right. And Paul called him out on it. You see, that's where the umpires come in. The umpires got the playbook. They got it memorized. The team does something wrong. The announcer says there was a flag on the field. Someone did something wrong. More so in college than it is in pro ball, but usually when an individual does a mistake, the one person he tries to stay away from is the head coach. Because he doesn't want to be reminded that he did something wrong. And it's usually corrected on the sidelines. Other coaches get them together and get them back into this form of unity. We have the playbook. And we minister and live in a world that, quite frankly, are doing a lot of wrong things. I wonder what it would look like if Christians, we could walk around with a yellow flag and throw it once in a while. Take out that yellow flag and throw it at the cash register person at Wise Market. take out that yellow flag and toss it out the window of someone who cuts us off in, in traffic. Oh, but let's, let's get a little bit more serious. How about going up to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, I don't believe that's what we're saved to do. But, Paul says, you speak the truth in love. Aren't you glad that God doesn't beat us on the head when we do something wrong? Someone give me an amen with that. Or am I the only one? I am so glad that, that God shares and ministers to us in his love. Yes, he does chasten those whom he loves. He will correct us. He will bring us back to the place in order that he has our attention. He knows we're not perfect. He understands that. But he has given us everything that we need in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in the second book of Ephesians, or I should say Galatians, Ephesians, the second book, when he says that according to the power that worketh in us, Holy Spirit. But confrontation is, is part of our being. We, we confront the world with the truth of God. 
There's one author who said when a nation continually walks away from the principles of the word of God, they will begin to hate those who speak it. The truth. Some ways we as believers are pretty narrow-minded because there is only one way to heaven. There's not many. I would die for that cause. I wouldn't die for the cause of whether I can or can't wear a purple shirt on Sunday morning. I wouldn't die for that, but but I would literally give my life to say that there is only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. And see, and that's what Paul builds the rest of his argument with, with Peter. He says, Pete, seeing that you have also believed in the gospel Now you're asking Gentiles to come back to be Jews, to follow the ways of the Jewish nation in order to be saved. And then Paul develops this wonderful argument that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. That's what we have to share. That is the confrontation that there is, that we have as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to share with a world that is lost. And the unfortunate part of it is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is that the God of this world has blinded their eyes that they cannot see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But we still have the mandate to confront them with the truth of the Word of God. And lastly, the function of identity. In Galatians chapter 1, 19 through verse 21, the Apostle Paul makes some startling and beautiful statements. I just take the time to read those for you. He says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Identity. Who are we? In our family, we have six offspring. Five girls and one boy. And over years... We have heard people say they look just like you. Thankfully, they say more of that to their mother than to me. 
They take on characteristics that the gene pool that we were able to put together produced what we feel to be six, and I'm speaking poetically here, six of the most beautiful children we've ever seen in the world. You say the same thing about yours. Can I get an amen from you? It's amen. They look like us. They act like us. Oh, that's even scarier. They do things like us. Their identity is us. And we used to warn them when they would go to school or they would go out on on an excursion somewhere, we would tell them, remember who you are. Because I know too many people and I'll know what you've done. I think the Apostle Paul is reminding us in chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, remember who you are. For we have been crucified with Christ. Our identity is in Him. And I perused the Scriptures and I found some things that we are crucified to. The Scriptures tells us in Romans 7, uh, verses 5 and 6, that I have been crucified, I am dead to the law. In Romans chapter 6, verses 6 to 16, it reminds me that I am dead to sin. Now that doesn't mean I don't sin. You go back and check Romans chapter 6, verses 6 to 16, and you'll realize the fact that you don't have to sin. Those outside of Christ have no regard but to sin. Us being dead in Christ, we've been set free that when the evil one comes to us to tempt us to sin, we can say, no, thank you. I'm in Christ, and I'm dead to that sin. And lastly, in Galatians chapter 6, in verse 14, it says that I am dead to the world system. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, I am dead to. But... I have fellowship in the life of Christ. And this fellowship is what is the substance as well as the source. This life is absolutely secure. I will never be plucked from his hand because of Christ living in me. I will never have to fear because of Christ living in me. I'll never have to walk away because of Christ living in me. The function of unity 
the function of confrontation and the function of identity. In Galatians chapter 2, those are all functions of effectiveness. I close with asking you a question. How effective are you? How effective are you in serving Jesus Christ? Paul would say, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Continue. Be effective. We got the rule book. Let's pray. God, thank you for the preciousness of your word, the power that it is, power that can set a prisoner free, one who, the power that is the very power of God. It changes us from glory to glory. And by it, we strive to live, to honor you. May that be our passion as we, O oh Lord God, desire to be effective for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.